0: Tonight I'd like to talk about wrestling with our demons. I doubt if there's any of us here who haven't found ourselves at some time in our lives struggling with our own particular demons. We wrestle with our demons in our lives, and so too we wrestle with our demons in meditation. We have different words, of course, to describe the demons that we encounter. We might call them obstacles or hindrances. We might call them tendencies or conditioning. We might call them patterns or reactions. Our demons are those repetitive movements that take place within our minds and our feelings, that lead us to close down, that lead us to battle with the world around us and to struggle with ourselves. Our demons are those tender areas of our hearts, our memories, our thoughts, that influence our ways of seeing and our ways of relating not only to others but also to ourselves. They are those areas that lead us to act and to react in ways that are often contrary to what we honor and who we wish ourselves to be. And we can rely upon our demons, it seems, to lead us, to contract, and to bring pain in our lives. Most of us know long before we ever come to a retreat what our own demons actually are. We're acquainted with them. Sometimes all that we ever want to do is dispossess ourselves of them. Some of the demons we encounter make only irregular although they may be very intense appearances. There are other demons that we carry within ourselves that tend to have a much longer history, that have been our companions for a long time in our lives, repeating themselves again and again in different situations. And it is these shadows that it is important for us to understand that we do not always have to be ensnared by demons, by shadows, by repetitions within ourselves. For one person, their demon, may be the demon of passivity or dullness or numbness. For another person, they find the shadow that they carry, maybe one of greed or of jealousy. For another person, their own shadow is that of anger or resentment. And for yet another, it may be fear. Fear and anxiety that arises in relationship to so many experiences and situations that are encountered. We can be sure that as we deepen in meditation, we will gain a very intimate acquaintanceship with our own demons. When we first begin in meditation, it often seems that we have so many hindrances and so many different obstacles to overcome. Seems almost uncountable the variety of ways in which we resist and close down We see the numerous ways in which we deny, or avoid, or struggle with our experience of the moment. As we become more still in meditation, what you will find happens is that the number of those seeming obstacles reduces, that it doesn't actually seem like we have all that many demons anymore. Instead, we may become more aware of just a few fundamental tendencies and fundamental ways of reacting and relating that bring pain, that repeat themselves in different forms, in our thoughts, in our feelings, and in our responses. Needless to say, this reduction in our demons is not always greeted with a great sigh of relief wonderful, I only have greed to deal with. (laughs) Or, terrific, I only have anger, that's my only difficulty, this is all I have to deal with. Instead, what we begin to see is how deeply ingrained some of these patterns are, and some of these reactions are. And sometimes that leads us to a sense of despair feeling that we will never find their root, that they're going to be our companion forever, casting shadows of pain in our lives. In the talk this evening, I don't want to look so much at the effects that our demons have upon us. We all know that. We don't need any experts to point it out. Instead, I would prefer to look at the ways that we may respond to the demons that arise here. What options does the practice actually offer to us? What possibilities lie within us in the way that we respond to patterns, to reactions, to ways of closing down that have too long been familiar to us? I want us to look together if we can But whether we trust that it is possible for us to free ourselves of patterns, of habitual ways of being, of forms of conditioning, whose threads seem so long and tangled that we can't even find their beginning anymore, how do we treat our demons now? So often we look upon our demons, As being enemies, as being opponents, things that we want to overcome, things that we want to rid ourselves of, or if we can in some way to erase. The words that we use to describe our demons describes our relationship to them. When we use words like obstacles and hindrances, it is clear that we relate to so many of these movements within ourselves essentially as being problems. It's understandable because we see that the effect of so many of our demons and shadows is to bring bring pain and contraction. It's understandable too because it seems that we have no options, that our demons seem to have a life of their own, their own momentum, their own movement. And it's understandable too because many of the demons that we see within ourselves are hardly flattering to who we would like to see ourselves to be. It's rare that anyone would like to go through their lives describing themselves as, I'm an angry person, you know, I'm essentially jealous, you know, I'm a fearful person. It is also understandable that we regard our demons as a problem, because they seem so automatic. Their appearance seems to shift us into such an automatic way of relating or being in the world. Ways of being which are very often contrary to all that we honor and all that we aspire to be. What we usually do when we regard our demons as enemies and as problems is that we evolve strategies and formulas in order to deal with them. And often it is true that we come to meditation also looking for a better formula, a better prescription, a better strategy that will help us to subdue the demons that we find difficult. Many of our strategies And many of our formulas are not all that conscious. Often they are as very automatic as the appearance of our demons is. And our strategies seem to work. And because they seem to work, we don't always see that our strategies really are as much a hindrance as the demons that they are meant to subdue. We want to look at some of the strategies that evolve? You probably had a preview of them today. Be able to relate quite well. The first of our strategies in relating to our demons is one of ignoring them uh, and ignoring what they tell us, ignoring their story, hoping that in ignoring them they will somehow disappear we may see some very repetitive reactions come up here. Sometimes it's really painful when you go through the day and you suddenly find yourself being so critical and judgmental about others or about yourself. You know, how your mind seems to have something to say about everything. You know, about the kind of color socks people wear, you know, or how they sit, or their walking style. And sometimes I'm so appalled by the critical nature of our minds. We may wonder how it's happened that we found ourselves at the front of the fruit, food line every meal, or indeed find ourselves wondering why we are so concerned with what other people think of us. may move through the building feeling that everybody's got their eyes on us, on our walking style, on where we are in the food line. It'll become apparent the ways in which our patterns repeat themselves. Now, if you've done retreats before, you may have gained the spiritual sophistication to be able to look at these patterns and to say, this is just my conditioning. It is not me. (laughs) However, that too is a way of trying to ignore them. Ignoring takes the form of turning away from what is actually happening. Sometimes that ignoring finds its, its avenue in fantasy and in dullness, in numbing ourselves. By numbing ourselves or by drifting off into some wonderful fantasy or by dullness, we don't actually feel what is taking place in the moment. We don't have to feel and we don't listen Sometimes ignoring, well, often ignoring, is a form of denial. It's not allowing ourselves to see and to know what is actually happening in this moment. And unfortunately, we often have a rather heavy investment in denial. Because to truly see and to truly understand our demons means that we need to really reach within ourselves, To really call forth from within ourselves great depths of creativity and honesty and courage and a willingness to let go. And sadly, we are not always so sure we're able to do that. We're not always so sure we have the capacity to really open to this moment. Sometimes we do not always trust in our own possibilities of being free of the shadows that we carry. Another aspect of denial tends to be more punitive. We are aware of what is taking place in the moment. Sometimes we feel we are too aware of the patterns and forces that move us. And our response is to reject what we see. A response out of our aversion or fear or dislike is simply to reject what we see. And then our mission, we make a mission out of ridding and negating and trying to bring a cessation to our demons through willpower, through forcing, through suppression, and through striving. And through all of these, we learn responses of punishment. And meditation, then, is not a path to freedom. It tends to become a path of abusing ourselves. That denial (coughs) takes the form of pursuing personal perfection, accompanied by all the shoulds and the goals that our minds can produce about how we should be which are too often so separate from who we are and from where we are in this moment. Second strategy for responding to our demons, not only in meditation, please be aware that our meditation reflects our lives, is the strategy of busyness and distractedness. Projects abound. Not only in our lives, but here. Sometimes it does seem that our energy is focused on very worthy pursuits. We can think of nothing more worthy than, you know, washing our socks ten times or, you know, extra work or just something to keep ourselves busy. In our lives, we find our appointment books are full and overflowing. Everything is taken care of. Every minute of our day is filled. Some people call this successful. Often it is a way of distracting ourselves from what is actually happening in this moment. It is a way of not being aware of our own aloneness. It's a way of not connecting with ourselves. For fear often of the vacuum that might exist if we did connect. And the third strategy, and there's many, but I'd just like to touch on three tonight. We'll be here all night. The third strategy is the strategy of despair. And this is perhaps the greatest tragedy. We are all too willing in this strategy to confess to our demons. We're all, will- all too willing to talk about our demons. In fact, we are often known for remarkable honesty and openness. However, one must be aware of sometimes the dynamics involved in that. We are so ready to tell others about all our imperfections, we could present a list of our imperfections, our failures, our tendencies, which we are all too willing to share. Sometimes it's a strategy of avoidance. By being first, by being first in any conversation, any communication, With our confession of our imperfections, in a way we protect ourselves from having to deal with the judgments of others, because we are presenting our own judgments first. And it can be a strategy of protection, a way of avoiding really understanding the dynamics of our demons. We don't need to understand because what we present to others and to ourselves Are all these ready-made conclusions and images about who we are? The greatest tragedy is that we cannot grow, we cannot, the fullness of our being cannot emerge when it is suffocated and overlaid with some impenetrable image that we hold dearly in our hearts, in our beliefs, as being who we actually are. It's understandable, these strategies, because we see them as being our survival techniques. But they blind us to understanding who we are. At times they are effective. But what they are actually effective in doing is that they seem to offer us a way of controlling our demons. We must see that control is a very poor substitute for freedom. And control is such a poor substitute for knowing the fullness of our own possibilities and our own potential. To understand ourselves on more than a superficial level, we need to be willing to take risks. We need to be willing to actually see what happens when we don't employ our strategies when we don't employ our formulas of control anymore, it involves a radical shift in our consciousness in the ways in which we actually relate to our demons rather than treating them as enemies, as something to overcome. Can we understand the wisdom and the skillfulness and the art of learning to open to our demons, not to condone them, not to collude in them, but to befriend them as a way of learning from them. In England, one of our particularly English neuroses is to be rather obsessive about our gardens. And I'll tell you a story about an English gardener.
1: There
0: was this man who had this dream of the perfect lawn not an unusual dream where I come from. (laughs) So I had this dream of this perfect lawn, and he studied how to grow a perfect lawn. He read all the books. He got all the right equipment. He leveled the ground with a spirit level. He had it perfect. He tilled it. It was all smooth. He had all the right fertilizer in. He did everything right, all in preparation for growing this perfect lawn. And one day he sowed the grass seeds. He watered them carefully, religiously, every day. It's a little bit of an exaggeration in England. You don't need to water grass every day. (laughs) He watered his grass seeds whenever he needed to water his grass seeds. And he carefully kept an eye on these grass. And one morning he got up and there was this tinge of green just beginning to show. He was so delighted, exhilarated, overjoyed. The grass was coming up in a perfect way. Every seed was sprouting. And he watched it carefully as it grew, you know, coming to that point where all you could see was green. And one morning he went out and sadly, tragically, there was a dandelion. One lone dandelion. He went back to the books. What to do about this dandelion? And he learned about how to dig up its roots. He dug it up. He burned it. You know, he covered it up. Next morning, another dandelion. It went through the same procedures. poor man was tearing his hair out by the roots. You know, his lawn was being devastated, marred by these dandelions that grew. So he kept working at it and working at it, digging them up, digging them up, despairing. Finally, at the end of his tether, he wrote to the Royal Horticultural Society, and yes, what can I do? What can I do with these dandelions? They keep growing, they are destroying my perfect lawn. And they wrote back and they said, sir, we suggest that you learn to love them. <laughs> It takes a remarkable shift. We go through our lives trying to uproot our demons with this obsessive behavior about how to control them, how to overcome them, how to subdue them, how to hide them. Is there another way of being? Is there another way of being in this moment in our lives? Is there another way of being in retreat? Is there another way of living where we don't have opponents within ourselves? where we don't see enemies, where we don't see anything as being a demon. To make that radical change in our consciousness, feel we need to ask ourselves, why are our demons so threatening to us? Why do we need all these complex strategies that we evolve? Surely we see that what our demons actually challenge fundamentally what our demons challenge is our sense of control. And when our feelings of control are threatened and challenged, our reaction is too often one of fear and anxiety. We fear that if we don't have our strategies, if our demons are visible to the world and others, we will be left naked, we'll be left rejected, we'll be left defenseless. But if we don't have our strategies, we fear that we're going to be overwhelmed by raging demons, that we'll be filled with anger or filled with fear or filled with greed, and then who will love us? We fear that we will drown in our own conditioning, our own images, and it's a frightening prospect. We equate being, we equate not having any control with being out of control. And then we fear that we will be swamped and overwhelmed. And too often we fear being left friendless and isolated. It is a frightening prospect. Fortunately, it is all an assumption. Until we have ever taken that step of actually turning towards our demons and learning to open to them and learn through them, all we carry are our assumptions of what might happen what we might become, the fates that might befall us. Control is certainly one of our most highly treasured possessions. It is our defender against the world and our defender against parts of ourselves we fear. We use control in order to create order in the present, we use control as an attempt, in an attempt to make the world conform to our personal desires and preferences and fears. And look at the ways, the many ways in which control it displays itself so subtly in our lives. Habit. Habit is a way of trying to control and protect ourselves against the unpredictable. The armor of our images, the armor of our images is a way of trying to protect ourselves from the feedback that we fear from others. Our strategies are a way of trying to control our inner world, to defend ourselves against disorder, against the unpredictable, and against pain. Suddenly staying in control is one of the most busy and strenuous tasks. We can ever undertake in our lives. We see it often very clearly when we come in a retreat. The first thing we do in a new environment is to create our own particular sense of territory and order. You know, the place for my cup, my sitting place, woe betide anyone who sits on my seat in the dining room, you know, my walking place. How often the very first thing we do is to set up a, set, a sense of territory, to create a sense of, also a sense of sanctuary for us. In seeking order, we do seek safety. On one level, this is understandable. On another level, our protection so often reinforces our sense of fear. We extend our attempt to control also to the future. We see that here, too. How often before we have groups or interviews we have hours of rehearsal of what we want to say, what we want to present. When we go away not having succeeded in, in making our rehearsals reality, you know, we replay all the dialogues of what we should have said, what we meant to say. Did anybody understand us? It is no wonder that we get so tired. You know, we painstakingly make all these plans and then invest in their results. And our minds are reaching out from one moment to the next in our lives, from one day to the next, trying to reassure ourselves against the unpredictable. It is tiring and it is exhausting. And what are we trying to protect ourselves against? Well, we are trying to protect ourselves against Is what is unknown and what is unfamiliar to us. Even the chatter of our minds. You've probably had a little opportunity to have a little peep at the chatter of your minds today. And really seeing that 97% of it is totally uncalled for.
1: It (laughs)
0: doesn't make any difference to anything. I mean, if you wonder where all this comes from, Why, as we walk around, we feel called upon to have a label for everything, you know, and a description, and, you know, to our preferences are expressed, you know, and, you know, that tree's all right and that one's not, you know, and, you know, why the mind has this compulsive need to order the world around it. Surely we see, I mean, it is not because the flower has to be called beautiful, you know, and the tree is wondering what its name is, you know, it's not asked of us from the world. Our minds have this compulsive tendency to want to make everything familiar to us through our labels and through our concepts, because our labels in many ways carry all of them associations. And our associations tell us what to avoid, what spells danger for us, what to pursue, tells us what might please us and what might displease us. The unknown and the unfamiliar is deeply threatening to our sense of self. Some time ago they did a survey here in America, you know, one of these sample surveys, asking the average American, if there is an average American if they'd ever had a mystical experience. And in this sample survey, they discovered something like 74% of the average American people had had a mystical experience in their lives.
1: 98%
0: never wanted to have another one.
1: (laughs) That
0: was it. (laughs) The unknown and the unfamiliar can be deeply threatening to
1: us.
0: (laughs) There exists within ourselves this incredible paradox. On one level, we want so desperately to hold on to what is familiar to us, to hold on to our, our sense of control. Even the scent of the unpredictable or the scent of the threatening leads us to parade out every strategy that we have. At the same time, there exists within us a longing, a deep longing to go beyond the confines of what we know, of what is familiar to us, to go beyond the confines of security and safety and order and to explore the unknown. It is a longing that inspires our spiritual search, It is a longing for that unknown which inspires every new beginning in our lives. Our primary hindrance in really being able to follow that deep inner yearning is our fear of letting go, our fear of opening, our fear often of our demons. Naturalists speak of the difficulties that they have in moving endangered wildlife. And tell this story of trying to move tigers from a place where they're in danger through poaching or through lack of food. And in order to move the tiger to a place of safety where there is food and where there there is no poaching, they have to sedate them with a tranquilizer dart, and they put them in a cage and they airlift them to a new location that is safe that part's not hard. The hardest part, they say, is when the tiger wakes up and refuses to leave the cage. And the tiger in that situation will do anything to protect what it knows. Even if what it knows is a small cage with bars, even when the door is open, it will fight for death to protect it. It will bite the hand off anyone who tries to get it out of the cage, this need to protect what is known, what is familiar to us, even when that fear keeps us isolated, even when that fear of letting go prevents us from being free. The struggle between our longing for security and control and our longing for the unknown, we meet in meditation. It is our very yearning to go beyond the confines of struggle, to go beyond the confines of conflict, to go beyond the confines and boundaries of what we know about ourselves and about the world that brings us to meditation. And yet the very first thing that meditation does is to threaten our sense of control. The moment that you sit on a cushion, the moment that you come into a retreat, What is threatened and challenged is your own personal sense of control and territory. There's no guarantees. There are no guarantees. We see almost immediately how we come in with this jigsaw puzzle picture of who we are and how very unreliable the glue is as it begins to fall apart, even on the first day. We can see we we feel relatively defenseless at times before the turmoil of our thoughts and there's nothing predictable. We don't know what will happen even in the next moment. And we do try our strategies. We do try commands and resolutions and they're not all that effective. You know, we tell our thoughts to be still how many times have you told your mind to be still today? Does it listen? Not a bit. You tell yourself how happy you should be to be here. You know what a wonderful opportunity this is. (laughs) You know, you should be overjoyed at this opportunity to have all this space and time and silence. Instead, you find yourself thinking about the ice creams you're going to eat when you leave. You know, you feel restless and desperate for something to do. You couldn't wait to get here. And the moment you're here, you find yourself counting the days, how many days are left till it's over. You tell yourself to be peaceful. No way. We desperately, in this situation, parade out our strategies. We try and rearrange and modify our experience. We try and reassure ourselves. And our expectations and our strategies keep us busy for a while. And when that doesn't work, we often resort to denial and we fall asleep. temporarily our strategies do seem to work. We feel back in control again, but then our demons reappear. We're talking about a different way of being here. We are talking about what happens if we don't use the strategies? What happens if we're just open to what is happening? What happens if we actually welcome our demons? What happens if we go that little bit beyond the edge of fear that says, this is nowhere that I want to be? What happens when we turn towards our anger, our sadness, our grief, our pain? And don't try to resist or deny, not to indulge, not to collude in them. What happens if we just open? One thing that meditation does do for us is it offers us a sense of vision and a sense of trust in our own capacity to open. It also offers us a sense of possibility that our alternatives are not either just to subdue our demons or to be overwhelmed by them. That there is another option, that we can develop within ourselves such deep qualities of spaciousness and sensitivity and openness and balance, that we can accommodate whatever arises within ourselves, that we can learn to hold our demons in our hearts, that we can learn to open to them All that we actually have here, we don't have guarantees. There are no guarantees. All that we actually have here in our own aloneness and in our own meditation is our trust in our own possibility, our our trust in our own capacity to open to what is. This is what we must draw upon a new way of being with what is, a new way of being with ourselves, which is free of struggle and free of enemies and free of opponents. I'd like to tell you the story of Milarepa. Milarepa was a very famous Tibetan uh, saint, meditation master. He was very well known for his diet of nettles that he lived on. He's usually represented as being green. He was also very well known for his wisdom, and this is the story of Milarepa. One day he was out gathering some wood and some nettles for his dinner, and he was feeling particularly happy. I exaggerate the story a little, It's, it's,
1: it's
0: the only fun in telling stories. Anyway, he was out gathering and he was feeling really very happy with his retreat. He was, on a, he was retreating in a cave high on this mountain. And he was, it was a very good day and he was out congratulating himself about how well his retreat was going. And gathering his wood and nettles and feeling very joyful, blissful, matter of fact, it says, he gathered his wood and came back to the cave. And when he arrived back in his cave, he found in his cave seven metal demons with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, some were grinding grain, and some sat performing magical tricks. As soon as Melaratha saw them, he became frightened. He didn't know what to do with these demons in his cane. First he meditated on his deity, didn't work. He uttered a mantra, didn't work. He performed a gaze, And that didn't work. Tried meditating, but he was still unable to pacify the demons. And he thought, he had a thought, but these might be the local demons of this place. I've lived here for months and years, and I've never thanked them for sharing this cave with me. And so he sang a song of praise to the cave and the mountain. Talked about a wonderful place it was for retreat. How happy he was to be there. And he he offered this song of praise to the demons and asked them to drink of this amrita of friendliness and to be gone. Three of the demons who were performing magic went away on this offering. But Milarepa was still unable to make the other four go away. And realizing that these four demons were magical obstacles, he sang a song of confidence. He talked about how long he'd been practicing, he had a very full portfolio. (laughs) How he'd been a novice meditator and studied with his guru, and how as a mature meditator he'd roamed the mountain solitudes, and how he simply wasn't intimidated by these maras and these obstacles. And he said to them, it's wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow, and from time to time we should converse. Well, with all this confidence, three of the demons disappeared. But the remaining demon performed an imposing dance. And Miller thought, this one is very vicious and very powerful. And so, he sang another song to this last demon. And he talked about the power of compassion. He talked about the meaning of compassion within himself. He talked about the power of love to let go of fear, and that if he wasn't able to let go of fear, that his sense of love had very little meaning. That if he was so afraid, his trust in his own compassion had very little meaning. And he sang to the demon, demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along, we'll talk out our differences. I feel so much compassion for you. And with friendliness and compassion, Ilarepa placed himself in the mouth of the demon. But the demon couldn't eat him and vanished like a rainbow. In our own practice, I feel, we are aware of our demons and for some time we must work with our strategies because it is not a point in this practice to push and to force. At another place within ourselves, as we become more still, we begin to trust in the power of our own love and the power of our own compassion to be with ourselves, to be with the world around us. We begin to trust deeply enough in our own possibilities and the possibilities of our own balance and love. We are no longer afraid to open to ourselves that we trust in our capacity to hold within the boundlessness of our own vision and our own trust any of the demons that arise within ourselves, that reveal themselves in our world. Very much like the tiger, we also come to understand that really the door was always open, that we never were imprisoned by our demons that we never were imprisoned by the bars that we might see around ourselves. We begin to understand that we don't need to wrestle and we don't need to struggle. We need to learn how to trust, how to trust in the power of our own love, our own openness and our own wisdom. And in this way, we are fully present and fully awake with what is in each moment. And in that openness, the power of our own love and the power of our own vision deepens. And it is this that frees us. It is this that empowers us to free ourselves of the cages we see. May all beings be free from conflict. May all beings be free from struggle. May all beings live with wisdom. If we could have a couple of minutes quietly together and then we'll have a break and some walking meditation. This talk was given by Christina Feldman at Insight Meditation Society on March 17, 1990. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.